Hey everyone, Paul here. In today's episode, I've got my friends, John Mark McMillan, Ted Kim, and Andy Squires on. They've all been on the podcast before. Most of you probably know John Mark McMillan as a platinum award-winning songwriter. Ted Kim has been on the podcast once before, at least once, yeah. <laughs> and he is a pastor in the Chicago area. And Andy Squires has been on at least two times, possibly more. I don't know, I have to go back and take a look. Andy's a brilliant singer, songwriter, pastor. He uh, just released a brand new record. It's called Poet Priest. It's awesome, and I just love these guys. We've been talking together for quite some time about re-enchantment, the secular age, the myth of secularity, what role arts and the church play in breaking off that general sense of malaise that so many people experience, that feeling of emptiness, the nihilism, the apathy, the sense that we're trapped in what Charles Taylor called the imminent frame. I so deeply respect all three of these men. I just, uh, I'm fortunate to be able to call them friends and I hope you enjoy the conversation we have all together. Today's episode and all of our episodes are made possible without advertisement because of the generous support that comes from listeners just like you. Stay tuned to the end of today's episode to find out how you can get involved in the Deep Talks Patreon community. That's the place where you can support this podcast, but not only that, it's the place where you can participate in discussion forums, like there will be a discussion forum for today's episode. We've got discussion forums for every episode. Um, there's also opportunities where you could connect with me and with other listeners from across the world in a monthly Patreon Zoom call, a whole bunch of other things that might be a benefit to you. I can tell you more about that at the end of today's conversation. Oh man, guys, I've been looking forward to this for, well, I think I threw this conversation as an idea out to you guys maybe a couple weeks ago. And it's been one I've been looking forward to for a while, regardless of doing this for a podcast or not. Um, I, I just, each of you guys in my life are like specialists in these particular things that I see. And, uh, and you guys each contribute so richly to my life as friends. Um, I just thought, man, like we'll kind of captain planet it here and our, you know, put ring the rings together and see what, see what comes out. There's a, there's a Gen X late millennial <laughs> reference for you guys. So I thought I'd start the conversation today, guys. This is something I kind of been doing even, um, I've been doing these like monthly Patreon discussions with a bunch of people that have been supporting the podcast. And it's been really, really cool. I actually... It's exceeded expectations. And some of the questions I've been leading with just to get to know people and to kind of maybe reframe some of the ways that we introduce each other. All of you guys have been on the podcast before. People have listened for a while. They all, they all know who you guys are. But um, one of the ways I'm, I'm trying to reframe even the way we get to know each other outside of just, here's the typical one, especially for men, right? It's like, what do you do for work, Right. So that assumes like the centrality of our own personal narratives are based around what we do to make ends meet, which is an important part of it. But the question I want to ask you guys, just as a way we'll go around and introduce ourselves to maybe those who are listening that aren't familiar with you guys and what you do. I want to know as we go around here, um, and I'll start with Ted, what are some of the ways you guys feel called to bless the world 
and to grow something beautiful? That's the question. So obviously, that might be attached. And it is attached, I know, to each of you guys and what you do and what people pay you for. But I know there's also other things in your life that you feel like, hey, I do this because I think it's a blessing to the world. I think it, it's growing something beautiful. Ted, why don't you introduce yourself and then tell, tell us what you think. Like, what are some things that you feel called to bless the world with and that you're doing with your life that you feel like, hey, I'm, I'm trying to grow something beautiful? Well, I'm Ted. Uh, I actually pastor a church here in the Chicago area. So my church sits on the northernmost border of Chicago. Um, so it's right up against Evanston. So it sort of feels like it sits in the middle between suburbia and Chicago, but it all sort of bleeds into each other. I know you've been here before, so kind of know what that's like. Um, and I'm here pastoring a church. Uh, and I'm I'm trying to pastor a church that I think my kids would go to. Hmm. So I just want my kids to love Jesus in the way that I know he loves them. And, uh, and oftentimes for better or worse, the church has actually gotten in the way. And so is there a way that we can actually uh, create a community uh, that uh, where, where people genuinely feel the love of God and where they experience the beauty of his glory, uh, where they their their deepest questions um, are not put aside, but actually like put forward, uh, and where their hunger and their desire is actually shaped and formed toward the one who loves them so much. So that's that's kind of what I'm interested in doing. Uh, I just started to have this realization, like when, when I was used to work leading worship in churches and singing songs. And I started asking the question, like, would my kids actually come to this church? That's a good question. Uh, I have like, you know, eight, six, three-year-old, fully, totally inured into whatever cultural moment, whatever you want to call this cultural moment, whatever it is. I mean, some people say it's liminal, uh, it's transitional. Um, Other people actually affix these kind of different labels to them but they are different than me. Uh, and I love that they're different than me. And I love what they think about and what they care about. And I love what they have attention for and what they don't have attention for. And I know there is space in the kingdom of God for them. Um, and for other young people who are sort of like living crushed in this moment um, here in America where all of these narratival forces are like brought to bear on them. And they're just trying to make sense and meaning out of the world. And I have that heart for like, not just my kids, but people like Gen Z, you know, um, millennials. I mean, like all the way through. I mean, the hopeful future of the kingdom of God is that uh, old and young stand shoulder to shoulder, right? Um, I think the thing that I worry about is that uh, our churches are no longer intergenerational. They're just old. And so (laughs) I'm like, what? That's a different thing. I mean, like, what well, are we going to be an old, older church that has happens to have younger people? Um, or are we going to have younger people who are used to designing their own experiences be able to actually say, here's the kind of church that I'd like to go to? So I understand that part of that is not just me, like, going out in the void and, like, building the church that I want to build. I understand that it's dialogical, conversational. I understand that it's invitational. I understand all of those things. And that to me is beautiful. 
that we could pull all of our collective identities together and actually say, let's build a house mm. uh, together, you know? So that's actually what I'm trying to do. Um, uh, I, I know I'm a charismatic, so I would just say this. <laughs> I hope this is okay. Go for it. But when I see your faces, I mean, I love you all so very much. I mean, I feel the weight of the Holy Spirit right now. Um, just when you started talking, Paul, I just felt the weight of the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't know why. I think it's part of what happens when I get together with people I love very much. Um, but I think there's something here. And uh, I actually just, I know, Paul, you'll get a chance to talk. And I know I'm talking a lot here. And I'll, I promise I'll stop talking. But Paul, the, I think the thing that you do, um, you, you live in this interesting intersection of different spaces. Um, but even in our last conversation, I just feel like these conversations that you hold uh, bring the power of the Spirit. <laughs> and so I Thanks, think that's man. also beautiful, too. And I'm feeling it right now. And I just wanted to articulate it. I hope that if you're listening, um, that you're feeling it, too, that uh, whatever emotion or whatever thing that you might be feeling, that weight that's pressing down on your chest, um, could it be more than just, I like to hear these guys? Mm-hmm. Could it be the spirit? I think it might be. So I'm excited about this. I'm, I feel very grateful to be invited into the conversation. Man, Ted, that's so great. I'm glad you went there. You don't have to ask for permission either. One of the, I, I just have to throw this in as you did that because I've been um, in a few weeks. I'm I'm preaching out of Acts 19, and I've just been so struck this week as I was reading it. The Apostle Paul, uh, he's in Ephesus in Acts 19. And he is preaching, not just preaching, he's actually kind of giving philosophy classes in the, in the, 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 the Tyrannus uh, philosophy halls by day. But it, like, he's not just doing that. Like in the afternoons and evenings, he's going out and like healing people and casting out demons so much so that like the people that are into sorcery bring all of their really expensive sorcery books and burn them and then they're like taking even just pieces of cloth that the Apostle Paul has touched and, and giving them to people. And evidently, there was enough potency of God's power on that, that people that were even touching these cloths get, are getting healed. And I was just struck by like, I want to be around people that do both. And I think about you guys. Andy, you often talk about like wanting to be around charismatics that read. <laughs> <laughs> which is is kind of a funny thing to say, but uh, I, you know, and Adam Russell, you know, Adam couldn't be in on the conversation today, but I, I think of you guys because you're you're thoughtfully engaging with the world. Each of you, in your own, like you're specialists. Each of you are, and, and yet in that unique thing, God's called each of you guys to. Um, you're engaging with it honestly. Andy, we were talking beforehand about like platitudes. You guys never, none of you, I've never heard either any of you guys throw out a cliche or platitude. It's just not in you. Maybe it has. Maybe Ted, you're looking at me like uh, it slips from time to time. Um, But that on top of like the thing that I still value from my charismatic experience is the idea, and we're going to talk more about this together, but the idea that the spirit of God that we see in the book of Acts is is present. Like this transcendent God is imminently available. So anyways, that, that resonated with me, um, Ted. So I'm glad, glad you did that. Andy, how about you? 
tell us a little bit about yourself. The, the people that have listened before have heard you on a couple of times before. Yeah. What are some ways that you bless the world? What are some things that you're doing that you feel like I'm, I'm trying to grow something beautiful here? Well, I, first of all, I, I just like to say, isn't Jesus always, he just continually our fly in the ointment, man. Like, it's like that passage that you're referring to in Acts 19. I'm just like, so it's so annoying in some senses because it's like, you get, you get, you get really smart. You get really, you get your systematics in order. You get this really articulate way of talking about life in God. And then, and then there's Paul in the new Testament. Like there, there's, there's the summer camp reference where all the sorcerers are burning their heavy metal CDs and, and, you know, <laughs> and running for the altar. And, and it's just like constantly, Oh man, you just can't peg Jesus down, man. And uh, I, I would probably like to just riff off of what Ted's saying. <clears throat> uh, when you when you initially asked the question, I, I I immediately went to like my music or even stuff that I'm doing in in the ministry. But I was actually late at night. Amy and I were in bed and we were just talking because we had one of our kids, our 18 year old daughter. We went for a walk yesterday afternoon and she, we had no, we had no reference point. We weren't asking for this, but she discloses to us that she's been reading her Bible lately and that she got a Bible app where she could do some devotionals every day. And to be honest, we've been terrible Christian parents. I mean, like we, we haven't really been that good at making our kids do Christian things, you know, and, and there's been no reason for that. It's only just because we've had six kids and we're super tired, you know, so. <laughs> That's a good reason. Yeah, but, but Amy and I, we were almost in tears when our daughter was telling us this because what she was saying was <clears throat> that she was receiving things from the text, from the scripture. In her words, she was receiving stuff from God that was actually causing her to lose fear that was in her own life. Wow. And she, she began to like, she's always been kind of a, a kid who's afraid. She doesn't step out. She doesn't, she doesn't do things. And she was telling us how she felt fear leaving. She felt fear leaving her body. And she was looking at these websites where she could go be a farmhand in the UK somewhere, live on somebody's farm for three months and take care of sheep or something like that. And Amy and I were just like, oh, thank you, Jesus. You know, like, so the thing I want to grow, the the thing that I want to grow that I want to bless the world with is first of all, just like people, I want to, I want to be around people in my own family that I could cultivate or foster some kind of hopeful dream. You know, John Mark's been talking a lot about dreaming lately. And it's like, there's, there's always a piece of me that's like, kind of like, yeah, but reality. Yeah. But reality, right? Like, yeah, there's starving people over here. There's people being persecuted in North Korea. Right. But, but like, what do you think about this with your own kids? You want your kids to see into their own future and you want to, them to go on some kind of hopeful journey with Jesus. Mm -hmm. And 
and, and, and experience life and all of its ups and downs. And if they can somehow connect their story in with the living Christ, or at least feel the living Christ story connected to their own, I think that is on my deathbed. That's what I want to be able to look back on and say, I did that, Mm. you know? I see that in your songs too. I mean, the songs are one part of your vocation, the songwriting, your the vocational call that you do, Andy, to bless the world. I see that. And I see you do that in a way that's really refreshing. I don't I don't see there being like a dividing line between you talking about your marriage with Amy, your relationship to your kids, fishing. Yeah. <laughs> and the sacred. Mm-hmm. And um that I think that's what probably most people feel an attraction to your music, at least at least those that can get it. For those that ears that you know, people that have ears to hear. Um, John Mark, how about you? You're a songwriter, Andy. I'm sorry, did you have more that you wanted to add there? No. Okay. No, let's hear from John Mark. Yeah, John Mark, tell us about yeah. the ways you feel called <laughs> to bless the world. You're drawing beautiful things. Well, I'm a songwriter. Among other things. But first, I want to say how much I love all three of you guys. Mm. Like, there are a few people who have inspired me as much as the three of you. And so it's just an honor to have this conversation. That's why I did the clubhouse thing. I got a little burnt out on it after a while. And I actually stopped it because I want to do it better. Not because I wanted to stop it. But one of the greatest things to be able to talk to you guys. And Andy was on there some too. It was just, it was just wonderful. It was an amazing excuse just to talk <laughs> to you guys. So it's an honor to be in this conversation, I live for this conversation with you exact three people. So, and a couple more could be here too, but you guys are definitely on the top of the list. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a songwriter and I, for years, I, I remember asking myself, what is music? Like, I feel like I bring up these questions and I feel like people look at me like, are you like, why, who cares? Do you figure it out yet? I know, like, <laughs> but, but like, as a kid, I would have these thoughts like my son is like, my oldest son is very much like this. He asked me these big questions like, and, and I love it so much. I love it. And I don't always have the bandwidth for it. You know, like for instance, the other day we get in the car and I mean, it's a busy day. We get in the car and he goes, dad, why did Hitler hate the Jews? I'm like, so and I just, just going oh, to soccer like, practice. Yeah, I know exactly. Like, um, ask me in 10 years, <laughs> you know, like this is, he asked these massive questions i'm like i need to start making a list and take time out to talk to him about this because like there's no way i can even begin to answer this question in the three minutes we have you know before soccer practice um but i feel like i'm doing that a lot so like asking like what is music what is faith what like what are these things i think we take for granted that these words are constructs that come from another place is the words themselves aren't meaning. The words are the way we articulate meaning. And to me, that's what I'm obsessed with. I'm obsessed with meaning, the way we articulate it, and then finally the way we put flesh around it, like way we wrap flesh around meaning. And so the reason I'm obsessed with dreams is I realized that the, the four of us have read a lot of theology books. You know, when I walk in, I, I wanted to make, and I still do, I want to make the term re-enchantment like annoyingly popular the same way deconstruction like you roll your eyes and someone starts talking about deconstruction like 
All right, here we go again. Ten years all over again. Let's talk. <laughs> you know, which is a valid word. It's an articulation of an experience. But once something becomes a, once there is this word for something, it's sort of more real than it was before, right? Once you're able to articulate something, something's articulated. So, like, I want to not. I don't know that reenchantment is the antithesis to reconstruction, but it's definitely the journey I would like to walk with my deconstructed friends on is the journey of reenchantment. To me, it's not a reconstruction. It's a it's a reenchantment, you know. So I want to make this term insanely popular. I've also realized it's very difficult to explain, or it has been difficult to explain outside of people like yourselves, you know, who have read a lot of the books. And it's not because people are dumb. It's just because, like you said, they're specialists. And you guys are specialists. And we can talk about things. And I promise the three of you can talk about things that I can't probably even get on with because you've read books I haven't read. And be like talking to a mechanic. I was like, I have not read your books. I'm smart in my way, but like I, I don't even have the beginning of the way to understand how you do what you do. It's not because I'm stupid. So it's not like people are stupid. I'm not treating people like they're stupid, but I do think that like I need, I've decided I need a way to do re-enchantment light. It's not even re-enchantment light, like it's a dumb version of re-enchantment, but it's like entry-level like re-enchantment. A doorway. A yeah, path, like yeah. A gateway drug, yeah. right? Like a gateway drug to re-enchantment, like a gateway drug to sort of maybe my version of a modern gospel, you know? But so the dreaming is that because in my opinion, and I was thinking about this today before this conversation, a dream is a story you tell yourself about the way the future could be. And then you have the choice to, or will you then articulate that story and then will you attempt to put flesh around that story so we take meaning and we dream it like we assemble it in our dream life in our thought life and then we articulate it pushes it further out into the world and then we attempt to put flesh around it and we fail like 99 percent of the time but the point is not whether or not the dream materializes in the way you imagine it because it never ever ever does. It's like marriage. You thought it was gonna be one thing. Turns out it's something else that's totally better, but not exactly what you thought it was. But that's the point. It's beautiful because your dreams are low resolution reality in, in a sense, you know, and, and you can get stuck in a dream world. That's sort of a, one of my issues. But at the same time, I feel like dreaming may be a way, it may be a term, it may be a way to talk to people or introduce people to the concept of re-enchantment in ways that they can maybe um, easily step onto. Because if I say, if I talk about re-enchantment, I think, um, you know, if you really break down the word re-enchantment, um, you know, I, I may be getting ahead of myself here no, in the conversation, but this is a lot to do with, yes, what I'm trying to do in the world that's beautiful. I feel like this is what I'm trying to do, is be an agent of re-enchantment in the world, right? The word enchantment comes from the words chant, which actually means story, and in means in, and you know? And so if you re-filled with the story, it's like, you you know? And so I, I think that we, um, over time, we get disappointed we start thinking bad thoughts. We, we start um, we, we start having anxious dreams, right? And then and then we stop dreaming because dreaming is painful. Dreaming is painful. But I also believe that pain is sort of part of the deal. 
right? It's sort of like you can choose to love. Loving means you're signing a contract that you agree to experience the pain of the loss because inevitably it will happen. Either you die or they die or you split up. Your kids grow up and move out, you know, like you lose your kids. Yeah. But you, 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 you choose to love them. You sort of, you sign a contract. It's sort of a both and type of thing. Or you could never do it, right? So you can dream and risk, you know, the disappointment, which inevitably will be there at some point. Or you cannot dream at all and live a low resolution sort of version of, of life, you know? And so that's what I want to do most of all with my music. I, I really, and I, I love, I actually, I love evangelical Christians. I love non-evangelical Christians. I love, I, I love all kinds of people. I love all kinds of non-Christians, but the people that I feel most called to reach are the people who are like slipping away from faith. Yeah, and my yeah. goal, and and, 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 and this is my motivation. Like my motivation is actually not um, okay, well, it's two-sided motivation. My motivation, when I think about it, is not as much to save them. Like, we're going to lose them, they're gone. As much as, like, I know how terrifying it is to lose your faith. I know how um, I, the sleepless nights, you know, like I had a good, I had a conversation with a good friend who was heartbreaking. He was like, he lost his faith and he said, man, it's like losing my dad and I can't talk about it. Wow. He's like, I can't talk about it to my Christian friends because they automatically go AWOL. You know, they auto, not AWOL, but whatever. They, they, automatically lose, they automatically lose their minds when I say I'm losing my faith. And then my non-Christian friends are like, this religion stuff was stupid anyway. You know, and he's, he's like, I feel like I lost my dad and I can't talk to anyone about it. I can't share this pain with anyone. And so like, for me, yeah, they, they, maybe there's a salvation thing in there, but I, I, I feel like it's, it's more than that. I think it's, I don't think Jesus saves people just because I think he, if he, if he saves people, it's really based out of love. And so the per, gosh, I'm getting way out there. No. I'm saying like if my kid fell in the water, I would jump in and save their life. But yeah. my point is not that they would just breathe. My point is that like they have things to do in their life. I love them. I want them to experience life. And so the greater desires that they experience life, not that they just simply don't slip away into the Yeah, dark, you know, just trying so, to save them from dying. You're saving yeah. them to something. It's I guess it's a compassion thing. And so like really that's what I hope for. And a lot of my shows, we have all kinds of believers. Like it's it's really um it can be a pretty diverse crowd of people. You know, even down to like non-believers who say like, I don't really believe in God, but I just love singing your songs with you. I was like, that's great. You know, I want to be the last person you listen to when you lose your faith and the first one you listen to on the way back, mm -hmm. you know, and that's kind of um, who I feel like I'm called to be. And reenchantment for me is the language around how I do that in an honest way. And so that's what I'm doing that I think is beautiful. That's what I'm trying really hard to do that I think is beautiful. Yeah, and you're doing a good job of it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you are. Yeah. So you said something in a past conversation, John Mark, about how, and even you've alluded to it right now, about you alluded to it when you were talking about your friend who is on this, he's maybe been disenchanted, right? Um, they're in a narrative vacuum. Maybe the story feels like it's collapsed on them. They don't know where they fit into it. Um, you've hinted at before, and I think even explicitly just said that you, you kind of went through, and I don't know how long this lasted for you, but you felt yourself 
in years past slipping into that abyss. Do you mind kind of talking about what the feeling of that was like? Because I think, you know, Ted can speak to and and Andy, I'm going to pull you in too as well. But I know Ted and I can maybe speak to the broader like academic literature that talks about this on a culture wide scale. But the culture is comprised of individuals. And so I think even getting an insight into you as an individual, John Mark, speaking to what did it feel like when you felt that disillusionment, when you felt like the world was becoming disenchanted, the story about God was collapsing for you, what did what was being in that place like? And maybe I missed, I feel like you've told me this before that you've gone through that in the past. Yeah. Well, mostly it's, it's kind of terrifying and lonely. All your meaning is wrapped up in one story. It was for me. And so, I mean, like I, as a teenager, like I was obsessed with church. This is probably a little bit, when we've talked about this before, it's probably a little bit different experience of church than a lot of people. It was a lot of fun. So I spent my teenage years every Friday and Saturday night in church. It was fun. The music was loud. Before mega churches did loud music, we were doing loud and fun. And we, in church, last two or three hours, like there were lots of people my age. It was fantastic. I loved it. Like I wanted to give my life to that. That's where I first started playing music and first opportunities to write songs in that context. I absolutely loved it. So just in the beginning, like, you know, just sort of my, where I came from, I came out of this. This is sort of like the foundation of who I thought I was as a person. Okay. So then I'm like, um, I write some big worship songs. And so I have this career that is just fantastic. Like my whole life, all I wanted to do is like get in a van and travel and play music. And now we're doing it and people are coming and we're selling out shows. And like on top of it, it's meaningful. People are meeting the Lord and they're having meaningful moments in the midst of what we're doing. And I'm having these meaningful experiences with, with you know, thousands of human beings. Then on top of it, after a while, my wife and I start to make a living. It's like, I'm making a living. Like I, I remember telling God, all I ever wanted to do is, is, is make a living playing music. I don't want to be rich. I don't, whatever. I, all I want to do, and then, like I realized, like, I'm doing this in my early 20s. I'm making a living playing music. Then on top of it, you know, there's a lot of like, um, you know, respect and honor status. And, and status that goes along with it. And people treat you in a certain way, which I was, because growing up in this sort of where I experienced a little bit of celebrity Christianity, my dad being a pastor at a pretty big church, we regularly had sort of Christian celebrities come through. My dad would always tell me like, you're going to volunteer at the conference or you're going to pay your way in. I'm not getting you in just because I'm your dad, because we're not doing this (laughs) stupid Christian celebrity thing. Like you're not more important than the other kids. It's like, to me, you're more important, but I don't want you growing up with feeling like you deserve more than, than the people who drive two hours or fly from overseas to come to the conference. Like you could volunteer, you know, and my dad wasn't one of the dads who like let me in the green room unless there was someone I really wanted to meet. He'd work it out. Cause I loved it. But you know, he wasn't like some of the dads, their kids are just at the table and they're just like living it up and eating free meals. And I'm like, selling cds at the you know concession stand this is great like i loved it kingdom it resources fantastic. table yeah totally it was fantastic i learned a lot at the table by the way about selling cds and um 
So like, but, but yeah, but there's, you know, but you people like that. Like, it's hard not to like that. People do you favors. You go to the coffee shop and they say, I know you I'll buy you coffee. They buy you dinner there. You know what I mean? Like if you need something, it's, it's, it's interesting, you know? And so like, I had so much wrapped up in this one. is just my passion. Like I loved doing it. Number two, like it was my job. I was, it's how I paid the bills. Number three, like I felt like I was doing something meaningful. Like it was a ministry. I really believed it. Number four, this, my ego is totally tied up in all of this. So there's not an opportunity to question your faith when like, um, you're, there's certain thoughts you're not allowed to have when they're too inconvenient. Like to lose my faith in that moment was just too inconvenient for the thought to ever enter into my brain. You know, but then I went through sort of a difficult time. Um, you know, just just business stuff. You know, just relationships, with people I worked with, and people that were good friends. You know, had falling out, and since then reconnected. But you know, like it was really, really hard. I thought we were doing something, and they weren't behind it, and I was probably pushing way too hard, and. You know, and you expect other people to sacrifice for your dream. When you're a young person, you think you can get everyone to sacrifice for your dream. Yeah. But that's usually how it works, right? Like suffering yeah. is one of the first things that disorients our narrative, our meaning making narrative, right? It's totally. the thing on whatever level we experience it, whether it's just like what you're saying, relational business. But the business is, it's not just business, right? Like, especially when in what you guys, and I think this is the case for everybody, some people might be able to kind of duplicitously shut off of what I do for work isn't really part of my passion in life, but it's like you're giving your life to it. So it better yeah. be. Um, but especially when you do something that you feel like is so deeply attached to what it means to follow Jesus. Like when you yeah. were, use words like ministry for what you're doing, John Mark, and that starts crumbling a bit, yeah. doesn't start going the way that you want, that suffering has a way of sneaking in and starts uh bringing all sorts of questions about the entire story. Yeah, and That could be an instance like that. It could be an instance of someone coming out with a terminal illness. It doesn't matter. Suffering is one of the first things that causes that breakdown of the story. So you're starting to feel that a bit. Where does that take you? Well, then it was sort of like when it came, it was like a deluge. All the questions that my situation wouldn't allow me to confront uh, once the door was opened is like a, an absolute deluge. And I spent a few years working through it. And I probably had a few dark months even, um, where it was probably the worst that there was. And so like, it's interesting, like nobody really did me wrong. Like no one ever like hurt me. No, but, but it was, it was more like there was that fallout with things that I thought were going to happen didn't happen, the disappointment. And then all of a sudden sort of the deluge. And I had to deal with a bunch of ideas that I had sort of refused to deal with. But then on the backside of that, there was the throwback to the existential anxiety that I dealt with when I was younger, you know, because I sort of handed that over to my, um, you know, sort of like I kind of moved on to a story, you know, like I kind of, gosh, what am I trying to say here? I'd kind of handed that over, handed it off. But now that uh, I was questioning these other things, it's sort of like it was back on me to deal with, you know, and I liked it a lot better when Jesus was dealing with it, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, which is funny because he's the only one who could deal with it. So, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, 
but that's kind of how I, en- I ended up there. That's a really long. No, that's great. Cause I think that's a good microcosm. Ted, uh, you know, you've spent a lot of time and guys feel free. Like you guys can cross examine each other. If you want to chime in at any point with questions that I don't have to be the only one to ask some. So feel the freedom to do that too. But Ted, I'm curious cause you know, you are somebody that has spent a, a bit of time thinking about this beyond the individual story, but maybe looking at it in the larger cultural context of Western civilization. Of course, like you've got deep connections to non-Western perspectives of the story too, as well. Um, You know, you've read, spent a lot of time with the academic, theological, philosophical literature on secularity and this idea that um, culture can somehow become this like godless, religionless space that's purely materialistic. And one of the things I appreciate about you, you've really challenged me to think about whether or not uh, that that story of secularity, the story that there is nothing has ever really been the actual story people have been telling. So can you say more about that? Because I think you can maybe connect John Mark's individual experience, the experience of his friend to see these aren't isolated incidents, right? So when we head into this space where the where God dies, um, the results of which are not pretty, and we actually see that on mass cultural level as well. Yeah, I... I- I mean, like, I know that you're very, you're super conversant with all of this too, Paul. So please jump in. Um, I think I, I think my interest in, in, um, in sort of what is, what has actually happened uh, really is located in the way people make meaning. So how do people make sense of the world? Um, and for some reason over the last, and you can, you can pin it to a lot of different sources, but for some reason over the last four or 500 years, this thing that everybody used to believe, which was that the universe was actually embedded with the divine, uh, all of a sudden that wasn't a thing that anybody that people believed anymore. Whether it was scientific revolution, whether it was the Protestant work ethic and Max Weber, um, whether there, there was a disenchantment, which you could call like an emptying of a particular story. So using John Mark's language, we were enchanted with the story that God or the transcendence was actually in the world. And so when a scientific phenomenon actually would happen, you would think, well, what is God telling us? Now what we think, especially because we know the mechanics behind how things happen now, we think, well, that actually is because gases did this and planets do that and stars do that and stars collapse on themselves. And so what we have done is we have traded a particular story for another story. Um, And so the story that we used to have was the story that the world or the universe was embedded with the divine, that you could find God wherever you looked. Uh, We traded that story for another story, which is we can explain everything with our heads. And that really that those changes were automatically though bad though, right, Ted? So like if we go from just doing right. this God yeah. of the gaps thing to thinking that uh, not just as a primary cause is God being the ground of all being, but like somehow the hand of God is holding the planets in place um, and we don't need to call attention to a force called gravity or anything yeah. like that. You're not saying that that, you know, you're not saying like scientific discovery is a bad thing. It's just might have well, been a, a consequence, <laughs> right? 
No, no, no. I, I know you don't feel that. And I just yeah, want to no, clarify no, no. that. That's, that good, that's yeah. a good clarification. You know, um, I mean, and even the exit from that kind of thinking that everything was, was, um, was embedded with God. Uh, even the exit from that thinking was, was maybe a good thing because look back in the 14 or 1500s, you had these distinctions between sacred and profane you know, there were certain things that were sacred and there are certain things that were profane, like speaking of Wendell Berry, which we were talking about before the podcast, farming was profane, mm -hmm. <laughs> but working in the church was sacred. And so something actually had to change uh, because what we were doing is we were actually like uh, revalorizing sacerdotalism or whatever, like there are actually priests and they are religious entities and let's elevate them because they do things that are sacred. And that's not accessible to everyone. And so secularity sort of came in as a different kind of story. And, but what ended up actually happening uh, in conjunction with all these other historical narratives uh, is that we began to think that there were certain places in our universe where God did not exist. You know, like uh, mm -hmm. government, public school. I mean, how many of you have ever heard like, oh man, the public school is a neutral institution. Uh, there's no God or no devil in it. Um, that's a, that's actually a secular thought. And that's actually a secular thought that was promoted by the church. Yeah, the church yeah. would say things like that is if we could just put Christian values in education, uh, then we have used it and wielded it for our good. Right. Um, but, but I think that we are seeing now, especially in this cultural moment of reckoning that institutions actually have a direction to them. They can either be doxological or apostate. And what we have seen is we've seen institutions like government or like public education actually inculcate into masses of people uh, stories or narratives that are extremely destructive to black or indigenous or other people of color, right? And we've seen that that's been happening. They're not neutral, actually. Uh, they carry with them narratives that can be destructive or narratives that can actually bring beauty. And so, um, so when John Mark talks about re-enchantment, the world is on fire with it right now. And it's not all Christian. I mean, people, a lot of people are talking about re-enchantment because they have just come to believe that the secular narrative that, that, uh, that, that there are places that are, that are not God embedded is just not true. Mm. Um, uh, religiously and, neutral, right? There's no, yeah, there's, there's, there's no religiously, religiously there's no actual vacuum of religion anywhere in the world. Cause religion is about ultimate claims to reality. And it's about that That's story. Right. Coherent, ultimate claims to reality. And by the way, history and science are, are of the same ilk. You make all sorts of imaginative conclusions, leaps of faith, as it were, in history. I mean, history is an interpretive, almost like religious exercise, right? Um, and we've seen it go go well, and we've seen it go poorly. Mm -hmm. um, and the project of reenchantment, which is the thing that I really appreciate about John Mark, and it's the thing that uh, that Mr. Squires wittingly or unwittingly does. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say wittingly because I think he's one of the smartest guys I know. But what part of what Andy does is in his music, he is re-embedding the mundane yes. with the divine. Yes, I was just going to say the, that exact thing. Like the, the, the sacred he, and the profane don't find division in Andy's music. It doesn't find division in your music either, John Mark. I think each of you guys, I was telling Ted this in a text exchange, and I'm, I don't want to embarrass you guys now. We were talking about your music, both of your musics. Yeah. Uh, the music each of you create. And I feel a little bit like 
John Mark, you're a bit like Plato and Andy is like Aristotle. And what I mean by that, maybe you've seen the the classic picture of Plato and Aristotle in the academy and, and Plato's going like this in the picture he's pointing up and Aristotle's going like this, you know, that's, that's, that's you guys, <laughs> you guys are the Plato and Aristotle. That's so real. This is so funny. That is, I, I feel the Lord on that description right there. That actually, I think gives me and John Mark a lot of grace to understand each other. Like, and, and what's even funnier about that, I was literally re- listening to a lecture on Aristotle's, Aristotle's virtue ethics this week. It was, that's, and I was like, this is my guy. This is my guy. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And the reason why I say that is uh, I think when I hear even just sonically your music, John Mark, especially what you've done over the last couple of records, I hear you calling people to transcendence to seeing that there is more than the moment in front of them, but not in like a Gnostic way, which is like escape it. But yet there, you, um, somebody said this to me the other day, I was talking to somebody and they said, I kind of feel like I've been playing a game of cosmic hide and seek with God my whole life. <laughs> not, in a, not in a bad way. It's like, I'm going out and I'm discovering him. And then I, I thought I found him there. And then he just like, you know, jokingly and lovingly smiles and waves from another place in the cosmos. And it's like, you you call people to do that cosmic hide and seek thing. And Andy, I guess what I feel a bit in your music is like, you're, you're somehow packing in to the now a whole bunch of transcendence and sacredness that maybe people miss in that 100%. now right in front of them. So where does that come from in you, Andy, that sense of like, I'm trying, trying might not even be the right word because I feel like it comes so naturally, but there's intentionality on your part to communicate how sacred the now is to remove that dividing line between the profane and the sacred, the sacred in this quote secular space. Where where does that come from? Because you and John Mark actually have a bit of time together, not just presently in the same church context, but in the past too, right? I mean, you guys were in that same same sort of atmosphere together, right? Yeah, I mean, John Mark and I have known, I was thinking about this recently, like t- over 20, 21 years now. So definitely, um, definitely swimming in a lot of the same waters for a really long time and, and obviously bumping up against each other for a really long time. Um, I, you know, my, uh, the the short story of, of why I do what I do is that I think eventually, uh, I, first of all, I feel like I'm, I'm, I feel like a, I'm repeating myself a lot. So forgive me for folks that have already heard me in other places, but like, I think that when real joy started to arrive in my own life is when I stopped being, uh, kind of like a a parrot within the evangelical context. And I just started telling stories. I I stopped being a Christian storyteller and I just just started being a storyteller. And uh, there wasn't wasn't one big moment that did that for me, Uh, but but there was definitely an album. So So the Cherry Blossoms record, which we've, you know, we've talked about that on a number of occasions, but the 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 events that that brought that record into the world 
uh, you know, there's, there was some, some, some tragedy, some like actual real life tragedy that happened. And then also tied together with just my own development as a person along theological and philosophical lines, it just, it kind of created this, uh, kind of like, uh, a moment where I was probably at that place of like, Hey, I've got nothing else to lose now, but to tell the truth, you know, like, Uh, I think, I think we get to a place in our lives where, uh, maybe we're afraid, especially within the, um, Okay, here's a, here's a thought that I've been thinking about lately, and it's it's been really helpful, and and I attribute a lot of this to the conversations that you and I have had, Paul. But but I I've I've been distilling down one of the big issues for Christians in America is that we confuse our subculture with God. Yeah. So so one of the thing one of the mantras that I've been saying to myself is God is not culture, and culture is not God. I think if you can if you can realize that, like really realize it within your body and your mind, it actually frees you to go into the dream spaces that John Mark's talking about. Because a lot of times people don't go into the dreaming mode because they're afraid of what God will do to them. And they're afraid of what God will do to them because the culture that they're in the middle of is is using language or speaking messages to them that they should be afraid. And God does not allow us to talk a certain way. Here's a really interesting thing. I've been watching um, The Handmaid's Tale for the very first time. I freaking love this show. You know, I I know a lot of people were saying this is kind of some like woke liberal, um, you know, attack against fundamentalist religion. But I see it. I see it not against religion at all. I see it against any kind of culture that, that, uh, that tries to limit language. So, so evangelicals are, are for, for, for many, many years now, are trying to control language. They're trying to control destinies, so they do that by controlling language. Wow. They don't even realize they're doing it. They're they're actually very in many ways very sincere, very earnest because their their eschatology is ru- is ruling their entire imaginative interpretive lens. And I think I think John Mark has been been chipping away at this for a lot of years, you know, and it's it's like, you know, in a lot of ways folks see John Mark's music as like it's out on the margins, it's it's uh it's like there's there's CCM and then there's John Mark and Josh Garrels and and then to a lesser degree Andy Squires and a couple of uh, other artists but but like but but the work has been to free people up from from language barriers that allow them to tell the truth you know and which is fascinating yeah. to me because Jesus was so much about revealing the truth. I mean, over and over in the scriptures, he's talking about how, how the truth can set us free. And, you know, um, but so for me, I, I, I know when I was 35 years old, when I was writing the songs from the Cherry Blossoms records, I was in no way articulate enough to know what I was doing. I can only see this looking backwards. But I realized that I... I, I came to a moment where I, I made the decision to see 
I, I adopted a sacramental vision of life that I did not have previous to that moment. Yeah, yeah, I can see and, it. And, and so I just, you know, part of this is skill set. Part of this is just makeup of, of who I am as a person. So there was obviously some mastery of the discipline previous to that moment. It wasn't like I woke up one day and could write really good songs but it was, it was like my theological voice caught up with my artistic voice. And the two of those things came together just at the right time and then found its way into the world. And that was the thing that kind of like launched whatever it is that I do right now. That's still in development. But, um, but the, the thing that I feel within myself, and I get a lot of pushback on this, and I know John Mark does as well, this... this this whole conversation is in some sense nothing but resistance to the greater power and principality that is ruling over our subculture. It's why we do this, right? But the, um, the, the virtues of art within Christian subculture have been put at the very bottom of the hierarchy of values. Mm. In, in my view. Yeah, 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 yeah. And when, when that, when there are people who start making decisions to say, to hell with that prioritization, and they, they, they bring, it, it's almost like we're, we're actually recapturing some Renaissance values where, where mastery becomes, mastery of a discipline becomes a high value. Yeah. And, and not just as a tool for yes, version. That's right. In fact, you almost have to walk away from that ideal of, of this being a tool to convince somebody to, you, you have to give up on it as a control tool. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a, when you talk about oppressive forces, we are so like entrenched in this story and I want to be careful how I say this, because if I say this one way, people are going to think I'm on some other team. But there is a hyper-capitalism. There's, a, there's actually a worship of mammon. Yeah. That, and gosh, think of a guy that has played an influence on both of your lives. I don't know, Ted, if you know him at all, but years ago, I was talking to Leonard Jones, and we were talking about, um, well, what do you think, Leonard, is the biggest thing that keeps... Leonard Jones is one of the most creative musicians I've ever been around. And it's interesting, his stuff never caught Mm -mm. in any sort of market place in the Christian subculture, anything like that. And the thing he pointed to was mammon. Mammon's the thing that keeps creativity from happening. Mm. Um, And I, I bring that up because the market forces that we are so programmed to seeing as normal, and this is even getting back to the beginning of my conversation with you guys, not just asking you guys, what do you guys do for work? Yeah. Because that narrative is so deeply ingrained in us that we we actually have like transaction of money as the thing at the top of our hierarchy, even when we supposedly are living in a Christian story. Totally. And then that bleeds into the way we interact with people where we actually treat other people as souls to be won. Nobody talked about winning souls in the New Testament. That's mm-hmm. like, it's like market language, right? Uh, and I'm not trying to get you to sign on a doctrine contract. 
I'm not trying to in, 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 um, engage with you in some transaction. And that's why, Andy, at least to me personally, I feel oftentimes like the art that I see happening in Christian communities is more, it feels more like an ad, an advertisement, than it feels like the great works of the Renaissance, which were telling a story. And I don't, it, it, the line between the two is hard, right? Like one person's art can feel like another person's propaganda. And that, that's really hard. I know you've been wrestling with that too, John Mark, like this question of like, what's the dividing line between art and propaganda? But sorry, Andy, I cut you off in, in midstream. You were saying that you feel like um, there's a real low value for the sort of art, the sort of speech, right? The speech, whether it be in language that we're using or other forms of communication, which that's what art is. It's just another medium of communication. It's a portal to our values. It's a doorway to see those transcendent ideas and values that we have. That it feels like at times the Christian subculture has a really low value for the arts. And we were talking about the difference, the dividing line between the secular and the profane. And I, even as you were talking, Andy, I was thinking about how scared Christians are of profanity. Yeah. And wondering too, if that gives us any sort of insight into our fears about, well, we still feel like the sacred is a different category. So if, if, if I buy an Andy Squires t-shirt that says no dams to give, <laughs> or Andy Squires sings in a song, something that actually makes a lot of sense in the context of that song, no, no dams to give because about, we're talking about the unfailing love of God. And the, the market forces say, you can't do that song, Andy. It feels a little bit like what they're saying is the sacred can't c- come into the profane to the right. profanity. Um, right. Well, and, and what's, what's more interesting than that is that, that that song is probably the most controversial on Poet Priest just because it uses the word damn instead of damnation. I, you know, if, if I'd said damnation, well, first of all, I couldn't do that because the rhyme scheme wouldn't have worked. But, <laughs> but I did think it was more interesting to say the word damn because I knew it was, it, it was, it's like the, it's the Rorschach test for everybody at that moment, right? But, but more so than that is a song like You Bring the Morning, which uh, has a verse with uh, some, a stillborn birth and a graveside, a couple graveside situations. And then, and then even, even the acknowledgement of, of young love being lost. You know, there's all kinds of different scenarios within actual life that are, are that find themselves in this praise and worship song and i get i get some form of communication all the time that says yeah i love the song but my pastor would never let me do this and so um mm. you know it's a slow burn man like like i I get it. Like I, I com- I'm completely comfortable with not winning this battle in my lifetime. But I think that uh, I saw Ken Ken Tanner tweet this morning where he was talking about, "Hey, what if you just imagined that this world was going to be around for another four thousand years? How would you start anticipating the future? How would that be different?" And so for me, he he said. So think of it this way, we are in the early days of the church. And I, I, I was like, that was a fresh thought to me. I, I, I felt new life come into my heart when I, when I realized that. Because sometimes I can feel hopeless 
at the score at the scoreboard because I'm out here in a sense doing what I do and and the math isn't looking good right now but but I I I'm just so in awe of the way the spirit is working actually that I actually love the side that I'm on I mean if if there wasn't us them thing which I don't really believe in at all yeah, I'm yeah. I, I believe this is all just like a great loom of the spirit and the, the, the Lord is just threading everything together so beautifully. But when I think about this maybe being a moment that is just the inception point of what we're all talking about right here, and that, that there will come a day when the church of Jesus Christ will freely sing about the, the, the trials, the toils of actual life, and not, and not just the not just the, the the great highs and lows, but the everyday life. Right? It's mm-hmm. it's not always. I don't want to live in perpetual sorrow no, in my no, life. You no, know, no. it's like I like you mentioned, Paul. Like, man, you're coaching your kids basketball. That that's like that's got to find our way, find its way into our liturgy. You know? Yeah, I think about those moments that you talked about where you feel, and I feel like these are the places that I would be most likely to draw upon your music, Andy, is at a funeral, Mm. a wedding, a birth Mm. of a child, Mm. something devastating, but also in something mundane. But I just think about some of those scenarios, and those are also places where profanity might well up within us. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, and it's like, what if that's a place that we actually haven't turned over to the Spirit of God? You know what I mean? So like in the, the place where the profanity wells up within us, where, where that pain comes in and that first instance is to, to cuss, to swear, to these are profane moments. You know, I don't know if there's a lot of resources at our disposal for that profanity, for, the, for that profane moment to be endowed with a sense of God's nearness in it too. And I think your music does that. John Mark, I know you've talked quite a bit and had been thinking about how, um, what would it look like for you to plant a sequoia tree, you know, <laughs> to build a, a cathedral and maybe Andy, you've touched on this a little bit. I, the old, um, the old, uh, how do I put this? Um, the eschatology of my youth bristles at the thought of humans existing on this planet another 8,000 years, right? Um, right. I honestly didn't think as a kid that I would live to see my my age right now. That's not right. a joke. I, I had literally no... I li- All I was hoping for, and you guys get this as youth group boys, was like, God, can I just have sex before you return? Can <laughs> yeah, I get married? Exactly. <laughs> that. <laughs> that was it. 100%. <laughs> From yep. one consummation to another consummation. Yeah. <laughs> Lord, you can return right after my wedding. That's <laughs> right. I remember being the kid thinking exactly. We, we all I- prayed that in youth group probably. <laughs> so I didn't have any foresight. And I feel like I'm starting just to make up for that. John Mark, you've been talking about that. Even we were texting last week or so about yep. what does it look like in your life to have something your grandchildren would still see meaning in that you've brought into the world that you've created that 
um, that, that that would still haunt them. Who knows where people are at? I think, Ted, you're right. I think the myth of secularity is dying. I don't think, and I, you know, the more people become aware of this, the more it's going to die. But here's your t- telltale sign. The next time there's some sort of like Reddit stock run on GameStop and they send armed guards to protect the, the bull at Wall Street, I'm going to tell you right then and there, we are not living in a secular age because that's an idol. Why yeah. are people standing in front of it guarding it? Because they're concerned about what's going to happen when these idols come down. If somebody comes here and tries to tear down this statue, we've seen a lot of Confederate, you know, soldiers and statues coming down. Like there is no empty space. So who knows where people are going to be at thinking about this stuff a hundred, 200 years from now, John Mark, but you've started thinking about your life and what you build in a longer view what's kind of like stirred that up in you and i don't know what where are you at right now with kind of thinking about not just what do i do with my life right now that blesses the people immediately around me but builds the sort of thing that's like a cathedral a sequoia tree for generations yep i well first of all this is one of my favorite things to think about so this is not really a lot of my thoughts are not based in uh really in science or even the Bible as much as just based in like the joy of me, like, you know, just thinking them through. Okay. That's why you're Plato. <laughs> I love it. I'd really enjoy it. You know, so there's this idea. I, first of all, I do believe in eternal life. As far as the mechanics of that, I don't think any of us, you know, feel like we fully grasp the mechanics of eternal life. So then there's a lot out there to like play with in your mind, right? I was, one day I was writing music in my dad's office and I kind of was stumped and I got up, no one was there. I got up and I started looking through his bookshelf. I found an old book of poems by, this would be more impressive if I could remember the name poems. Who were the two brothers who wrote a lot of famous hymns and uh, John and Charles Wesley. Yeah. The poems by the Wesley brothers. It's either the two of them or one of them. And they weren't hymns, they were poems. And I read and I was <laughs> really enjoyed it. I was like really inspired. Like I felt the spirit reading these poems. It's like these people have been dead a long time. And here's something they did who's sitting there waiting for me to bump into it. And here I am having a connection with these wonderful dead people, right? Yeah. There is an element. I'm not in any way saying this is the eternal life that Jesus offers, but I think this is an aspect of eternal life is that the life they had with Jesus continued. That's right. Because they dreamed and they articulated and they acted and they manifested something in the world. And here I am, this like depressed young dude who's like trying to write a song to make a living and I'm struggling with my faith and I read this book and it was so wonderful. It made me think, number one, I told my dad that day, you have to write a book. You have to, you can't live your whole life and not write a book. There's no guarantee that your book is going to reach many people. There's no guarantee that what, you know, but, but, but if you don't do, if you don't put it out there, then, then it's, it's guaranteed not to, you know? And so I started to think, could I write a song that would last a hundred years? How would I write a hundred year song? That would be awesome. 
It would be so cool to know that my great-grandchildren were singing a song that I wrote and that they were experiencing something of my life in God hundreds, a hundred years after I died, maybe 200 years because we have the internet now. So everything's forever, maybe, you know, depending on how we treat each other and if we blow each other up and <laughs> yeah, right. may, you know what I mean? But, um, but I just thought what an amazing, beautiful idea, you know, and I'm obsessed with the sequoia trees. I have been since I was young, you know, what everybody watches star Wars, you know, if you grew up in the eighties, you watch star Wars and the Ewoks and, I always wanted to see them. And I remember the first time seeing the Sequoias and just being blown away at how huge they were. And that there's really no way to film or take a picture of one. They're just unreal. And they're like, they were just hanging out there when Jesus was alive. They were just there, you know, and they always have been, you know. And so there's this, this whole thought process runs through me. You know, I think it's every seven years, your cells change over, right? So there is nothing physically in you that is the same. Like we are constantly in motion. And I think in God, it's like we enter into the momentum of God, you know? And, and I think, you know, if Jesus is the word and again was the word and taught the word becoming flesh. And Jesus talks about fulfilling the law. And that means to put flesh around the law and to, you know, and so this whole idea, it's like, this is the archetype of what God does from the beginning. He's nothing. And he thinks of something or he dreams that I'd like to say, then he speaks it out and then he manifests it. And this, we're caught in this cycle of that over and over and over again. And how beautiful is it to know that we've entered into that in the right way. We can, we can put these stories out into the world where we die and go on, go on to heaven and go into the ground or wait for the resurrection or we become part of the world. And then Jesus brings it back and ultimate restoration, whatever it is, however it is he does that and exactly whatever it is he does in that. But we could, put it out there and create these things. And I could dream up something late at night or write a song on my porch. And then long after I'm gone, someone else can sing that song and have a moment with me and God. And I don't know, it's, it's beautiful. I, I love this idea of being a part of the world, a part of the universe. I also, I have this problem too. When it comes to language, I, I've realized, and this is really fun. I've, I've noticed this my whole life because I've done it on purpose a few times. Or Andy does it too, where you drop something in the song that you know is going to rub people the wrong way because it makes people take notice. And to me, that's what, that's sort of what I wanted. That's what art does. It literally, that's what art does. It requires you to take notice, to take stock of a thing is we don't really create anything. We take pre-existing materials and we rearrange them in a way so that they can either be re-seen, seen correctly for the first time or point to something else. That's all we do. That's, that's all everything. Creative. That's everything in the universe. Exactly. Right. We have the same yeah. amount of matter and energy yep. in the universe right now yeah. as we did when the Big Bang happened 14 yeah. million years ago. Totally. Yeah. And it's all just being repurposed, renewed. Exactly. And we just get to be part of that process with God. We get to be part of that process. But I've noticed, as far as language goes, I can sing about the ocean and just love that in worship. Sing about mountains, love it in worship. You can sing about stars from the distance, especially if you the word, use the word heavens to talk about stars, and they love it. But if you mention the planets or the universe, people are like, ah, they lose their minds, right? Like you can't sing about the planets in worship. You can't sing about the universe. Are you saying God is the universe? Well, I wasn't saying God was the mountain, except unless I'm making a metaphor, and then I can. I'm not saying God is the sea, uh, unless I am saying God is the yeah, sea, because yeah. metaphor. But if you say God is the universe, yeah. you are like, he's gone. He's worshiping crystals, like, you know, <laughs> like... Anyway, I just think language is really funny. That's a little bit of a side 
But it, it, it relates to what we're talking about a little bit. Oh, totally. I mean, when you're talking about that, I'm thinking about Ted, and you can speak probably more to this than I can. I think instantly of Tolkien's idea that we as image bearers are made as sub-creators. And I know that's something, you know, as a fan of Tolkien, um, you can probably speak to a little bit. Um, Tolkien builds this, I mean, his contribution to the world to make the world beautiful by telling a beautiful story is going to last, you know, forever, right? I mean, as long, and I believe as part of the Christian story that we're around forever. I think that's part of it. Um, But for that 8,000 years from now, I think people will look back and they'll still read this Catholic guy telling this fantasy story and Mm -hmm. with no explicit reference to the name of Jesus or God, but it's a haunting story. It's an enchanting story. Mm -hmm. How much has Tolkien and that idea of being a sub-creator impacted you, Ted? Well, I was just going to say, as I listened to Andy and I listened to John and Mark talk about their songs, um, and I think about that book of poems that you picked up, John Charles Wesley, uh, and think about the Wesleys being like the progenitors of this like very, this movement of Methodist churches. And the thing that lasts this little book of poems and also the thing that we actually talk about Martin Luther a lot uh, as people of the Reformation, but then, you know, like we sing. Well, most of, most of what people know of Martin Luther is actually um, maybe a dowdy kind of like him, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and it, this feels like actually very cogent because I believe that this is true. I believe that exits from this idea that all we can know in the universe is with our minds, the exit from secularity uh, happens through the aesthetics and through art and through songs and through music, through through beautiful artifacts. You know, um, that's what that's what Charles Taylor says. Charles Taylor says, you know, you want to teach a, a secular person about transcendence. You don't talk to them about God. You have them read Gerard Manley Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Um, there are words in Gerard Manley Hopkins that are not in the English dictionary, and they will awaken things, just like your point, to your point, like, Andy, and also you, John Mark, you slip in that little word that you know will kind of trip people up. Well, Charles Taylor says that is the program of helping people realize that there's something more than just what we can see, feel, taste, and touch. We have songs or poems that actually make us stir something in us uh, that make us believe that there's actually maybe more than what we what we can actually control or know with our heads, right? And of course, C.S. Lewis is a prime example of that, right? I mean, he's an atheist. He started reading these mythopoeic like books by George MacDonald. I mean, if you ever read George MacDonald, they're weird books. I mean, yeah, they are. Just like, they're kooky. I mean, you you're like, well, I don't know why these didn't fly off the shelves, and then you read them and go, that's why, you know. But he he read these books. And he was like, there's got to be something more out there than my atheism, you know? And it's like Chesterton says, I mean, if there was no, there was no God, there would be no atheist, right? <laughs> you know? Um, but these books and these, these little fanciful things, you know, um, they actually help us realize there's something more about them. And oh, by the way, uh, one of the other things that I just want to say about all that's common to these things is that they're kind of childlike. I mean, like elves, you know, 
trolls. <laughs> you know, I mean, like you read The Hobbit and you're like, this is a kid's story. And then you read Tolkien and you're like, is this a kid's story? I think it's like a kid's story. Um, there is also something about songwriting uh, that traffics in magic and wonder, right? I mean, yeah, oh, honestly. Yeah, definitely. And so those that's the, the re-magicking of the world that happens when we write these songs, which is why I love the songs of John Mark and Andy so much. On the one hand, they keep me close to the dirt. On the other hand, they let me fly close to the, to the heavens, right? Um, but they both do the same thing. They make me feel like a child again, number one. And number two, they make me realize maybe there's more out there than just, you know, like my bills. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know? Um, like, uh, I, I, one, of my, one of my favorite songs of John Mark, actually the number one song for me for John Mark is Holy Ghost. Uh, because the first, it feels like a manifesto against the current God of this age. I mean, there's some scholars that say, we never were secular. We were always baked in with transcendence. We just didn't realize that the transcendence that we traded God for was mammon, money. That's right. That money was, money, the market. I mean, talk about the market. I mean, I'm a senior pastor now. So people tell me, the market tells me how much I pay my youth pastor. Isn't there something wrong with that? Like I have to look at other churches and find out like, here's how much other churches pay their youth pastors. So this is how, no, I'm not gonna let the market tell me how much to pay my youth pastor. I'm not going to let him do that. Mm. You know, I mean, that feels really disembodied. Mm. Um, but anyway, wow. I just want to say what I love about that song, Holy Ghost, um, is it feels like a manifesto against mammon. Mm. Is that a love for the paycheck? <laughs> it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, like the geeks that are coming? You yeah. Know? I mean, like, I, you know, um, I, 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 what I love about that song is I love, hey, uh, in the midst of all this, am I a mercenary or am I a lover? What have I actually become? What have I actually become? You know, um, and it speaks to, of course, like this thing that I think is really, really important, which is what I'm really glad for. Leaving secularity means if we can't know everything with our minds, then maybe our loves are important. Maybe our desires are important. Maybe yes. what we want is important. Maybe our dreams actually are something that aren't just like fanciful, but they actually have firm, solid rooting in eternity. So they're actually more important than maybe the fact that, you know, I like have a, I have a dream for, I mean, like I have a job or something like that, that these dreams are actually they actually have substance to them, you know? I mean, we're used to thinking of them as being things that, oh, well, he's just a daydreamer, as if that's a pejorative thing. What if being a daydreamer means that you're not Icarus, but you're actually an angel? What if, mm -hmm. what, what about all of that, you know? And so I love the fact that in this particular song, on this side of the thunder, it can be awful hard to know. I mean, amen times 1,000. <laughs> and if you listen to that song, you ought to catch a glimpse that there might be something more. The same thing with You Bring the Morning. Those are my two favorite songs of you guys because they do the thing that I think music needs to do, which is say in the grit of reality, there can actually be joy. There can actually be something beyond us. And that something is not terror, but love. And so, I mean, I think that the songs are important because they're going to help us exit out. And even if it's just a short episode in the grand chapter of the history of the church, um, it's still important. Mm. And so that's I have, what I would say about that. 
I have a couple quick things I want to say before I forget because I'm kind of inspired. I always I always get this way when I'm talking to you guys. But number one is Ted just nailed this a second ago. But but this question you've asked many times about why did I ask you guys what you do? That seems so weird. Why did I ask you what you do? Well, here's why: it's because what you do matters so much, and the reason it matters is because. Your body is the way you exist in the world. And what you do with your body, the work you do in the world, in a lot of ways is who you are. It is. Or it's an expression. Yeah. And, the, and when what Ted said is talking about mammon, it's it, it's actually probably wrong that like the reason you felt like it was wrong to ask us what we do is because you automatically equated what we do with how we make a living. And I mean it's hard to get away from because we have to survive. But at the end of the day, the goal is to live a life where we do the things we do in the world, express who we are, express who God is in us, right? It's like, isn't that the ultimate is what you do? Aren't actions sort of the ultimate um, yeah. form of belief and the ultimate form yeah, of being? And, and, and then this other thought is, there's two things in art, and I think it relates to this. Number one is Andy, you and Andy talking about profanity. Number two is Ted talking about, you know, this childish elves. And I think there's two different things that art can do. One is the profanity. The offense is the thing that says, stop and pay attention. When my wife, my wife is very kind, but if she dropped something on her toe, you would not believe what comes out of her when she's actually hurt because she's saying, pay attention. This matters. This really, really matters. The problem is if you use profanity too much, it ceases to have that power. So it's kind of exactly. a both and. We got to have it, but you can't use it too much or it totally loses its power. Well, so then the other side of that is the, you know, is the sort of why do we have the elves and the goblins and the, it's because it does the same thing in another way. You're, you think you know what's happening. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to trick you into paying attention to another story, but I'm actually still talking about you. I'm actually still talking about real life. So on one hand, I'm telling you to stop and pay attention. And then the other hand, I'm telling you like, stop paying attention so that I can draw your attention to something that maybe you haven't considered. And I can't remember who's talking about the movie Nemo. This this guy, he writes for major motion pictures. He's won a ton of awards. He says one of the best movies the past 20 years is the movie Nemo, right? It's not about a fish. It's about you, right? It's about your fears. It's about your anxieties. It's about you getting out in the world and facing your fears, something that matters to you. But you don't think it's about that because you think you're watching cartoon fish. But that's the point. They distract you with cartoon fish because you think it's a story about cartoon fish and they reintroduce you to you, yeah. right? And that's what art does. And to me, that's what re, that's the work of re-enchantment, right? Is I want to re-enchant you that, no, it's not wrong to ask what I do right? Because what I do matters, right? But what's wrong is that we all think that what we do is tied to money or is only tied to money or that only, money yeah, yep, is yep, the yep. definition or the value behind what we do. You know, that's what we got to get away from. And I'm not saying I know how, cause I also got to pay the bills. Yeah. But, yeah. but people but pay the bills. People yeah. give you that because they actually see value in what you do. So I'm not trying to diminish that because oh, yeah. what we actually do have are people exchanging value. They say, hey, John Mark, I mean, 
this is harder for you and Andy now than it's probably ever been on a market standpoint because it used to be a time where you you'd put something into some sort of physical item and at the CD booth at the merch table you'd actually exchange that thing for some representation that person said hey I see value in this enough mm-hmm. to give you something uh, obviously with streaming that's a much more weird complicated process now but it's still the same principle right so it's not to diminish that when people see value in what you do, but it's also to say like the way reason why I've been like framing the question differently lately is to acknowledge that there's useless beauty in the world that Mm. doesn't have an immediate, because in our cultural context, our culture has a set of values. We have a set of gods that we follow in our culture. And the reason why I don't lead, I'm trying to lead with that less these days is to acknowledge that you can do something totally beautiful, but it might not be in alignment with our cultural values. Therefore, people do not exchange what they see as valuable for what you do. Mm. And that robs people. So you, you have to pay the bills. Like we live in a cultural context where, um, you know, my wife and I, we work through this quite a bit, you know, because I've been in like the sorts of things that millennials look at as like a, a meaningful career. Like I'm in ministry. I was a teacher for years. And, you know, people look at that stuff and they go, oh, that's, that's somebody in one sense that's um, doing something of value, you know? And then I hope my wife doesn't mind me saying this. On the other hand, like she's been doing things like designing websites and stuff like that. Right. And she's really, really good at it. And other people think she's so good that they'll pay her for it. But in one regard, it feels a little bit like, well, she's got a whole bunch of other things in her that she loves to do that is a blessing to the world that right now maybe doesn't have people going, oh, I will pay you so much for this, right? Andy, like, you know, you've probably not had, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, like you've had like the same commercial success with your music that John Mark has, right? And that could be that could be a, a mode for you to get discouraged, but it could also be just a sense like, if you gave up on songwriting, I would say that would be a mistake, even yes. though the cultural context you inhabit might not see as much value in what you're doing mm-hmm. um, as you know somebody that makes, I'm not saying John Mark does this, but someone that makes $100,000 a year in streaming. Right? Sure. But you've got to yeah. keep blessing the world because you're yeah. not thinking about the immediate gratification. Whether you end up being a Herman Melville Mm-hmm. who died in poverty. Nobody knew who he was, only later to be like, man, Moby Dick is an amazing book. Yeah. Or yeah. people never see it until generations down the road, and they're like, man, our great-great-grandfather, do you see the songs that he wrote? Right. Yeah, I, I've, I've really made peace with that. First of all, I, I, don't have a, I don't have a martyr complex or a persecution complex in that... I, I have a really good life. So I don't want to, I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to publicly say, yeah, I'm just a struggling artist because I'm not. So we're, we've got, you know, on, on a, on a spectrum of earning a limb income from what we do. I I'm really happy with where I'm at, but of course we all want more. Like, like I want, you know, I, I, I want to take care of my family better than I am. But I've, I've definitely got a different drive within me. Like, 
let me tell you this. Over the past five years, I've turned into a very good small business owner. Like I've gotten ve- I've gotten smart and I've gotten wise. Like hanging around John Mark, hanging around some of my other friends who are they they are they're savvy business owners. So I think like I was reaching recently preaching this message about how trouble comes at us in our lives. Like trouble is always gonna is always on its way to us but there are forces in our lives that we can control and we should, you know? So, so here's how I live my life. Like I'm a small business owner with my music and I'm always working to build up the framework of my music business to be, to be able to do more than it did last year. But on the other side of that coin, I don't ever make artistic decisions in order to grow my business. Like, I'm just making music that I want to listen to. That's what I do. Like, you know, I, I, that old Prince story where somebody asked Prince what, what kind of music he was listening to. He's, and he was, like, stumped by the question. He's like, what are you talking about? I listen to what I, I listen to me. That's what I do. You know, it's like, that sounds arrogant. But I, I get, I, I have the sense that real artists who take themselves seriously pay attention to what they are doing more than what anybody else is doing. And I can always tell when an artist is paying more attention to what the market is, is saying to them versus what the thing that's inside of them is saying to them. Like, I'll say this, like just full disclosure with me and John Mark's relationship. Like sometimes John Mark and I dance around each other, like even with our, our own artistic pursuits, like, we each have opinions on what the other person is doing artistically at the moment. But like at the end of the day, one thing that we're always recognizing in the other person is that, gosh, dang it, that person is making radical artistic decisions that you're not seeing anywhere else, at least within the, the, the spectrum of, of faith music, like yeah. that faith orbit. Yeah. You no. Know? So like, like I'm always trying to like, when I, when I hear an artist who is taking a risk, like even if I don't like what they're doing, I'm like, I try to promote the fire out of that thing because I'm like, that is rare. And I think in a sense, that is a parallel to, to life in the church or life in faith, life in Christ, is that we are actually only going to get to the place that our inner aches and inner dreams are telling us that we should go if we take a risk. And you, in order to do that, you have to sometimes lose on the money side, on the fame side, on the, you know, you know all of the things that the world has told us are important. And, and I'm telling you right here on public access, I ain't trying to be poor. I am not trying to be poor. I, I, that, is, that is not for me. Anybody who wants to play this poverty spiritual game, you can go play that. I am not trying to do that. But at the same time, I am definitely willing to pay the price for creating and bringing in good music, good poetry, good painting, good, you know, all the stuff. You know, if, if I were a filmmaker, do you know who I would want to be? I would want to be Terrence Malick. Because when I watch Terrence Malick, films i i get born again i get exactly. saved again i want mm-hmm. to follow christ again you know and and i that's the kind of music that's the kind of art i want to make i want 90% of the people to be stumped i want 
I want 5% of the people who, who already have ears to hear to hear me. And then I want that other 5% who are living in between those two spaces who need an invitation to come over into the, the, the world of the tree of life. That's that's what I want to make music is that thing that calls those people over here, you know. Sorry, you got me off third. No, no, that's good. <laughs> can, can I say one thing? Please and, do. And this 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 relates a little bit. This relates a little bit to Andy and, and to John, but it, but it, but it really doesn't. I just want to say one thing about the market. Um, one of the things that we're assuming is we're assuming if something is good, it will make it it will rise up to the top. Yeah, no, that's, that's the thing, thing I'm exactly challenging. Yeah, is you know, because like, there could it, be those principalities and powers which fee, which have stirred our appetites and affections a particular way. But yeah. it's not even just, it's not even just like, we have a, we, we have like, we're crossways with like what's actually beautiful. It's mm-hmm. also, I mean, this is part of what it means to live in, live in a world that believes that the market will when somebody produces an artifact that everybody should benefit from, I mean, even if even if you're sitting in the you're sitting in the highest position in the land or whatever, and you're like, this is something that needs to make it to market. We we just need we just need it, and we were assuming that that's actually going to happen, and it doesn't. It just simply right. doesn't. I mean, there are other Terrence Malicks out there that yeah. do not that that do not have the wherewithal that do not have. I mean. that have made beautiful artifacts and beautiful things that have actually like they 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 are doing some beautiful brilliant work and they nobody knows who they are that's that's why i take so much comfort in being a christian because i actually have an internal trust that the outcome really isn't up to me and 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 I, I have that theology of the seed going in my brain all the time that, that so much of our work will fall into an invisible place, yep. but it will do what it was supposed to do. I believe that with all my heart. Yeah, and I do too. And uh, I mean, I believe that, I believe that, that the thing in, that we do uh, in, as it's, what, at the invitation of the Spirit, or as it lines up with the work of God, or in the kingdom of God, that the Lord will see it, will establish it, will bless it. I think the thing that I am just saying is, I am saying, whenever you mix up, no matter how, no matter how like, no matter how wonderful the partnership is, but whenever you mix up, whatever Christian endeavor you're doing, um, and the metrics are mammon. Oh, yeah, I'm, I, yeah. I, 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 it, 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 like it cuts me to the core, and I think that one of our jobs is people who, who I mean, I love Andy that you promote. I see John Mark doing it too, you know. Um, I think that in the Christian space, one of the things that we can do is we can say, uh, "This needs the light of day." Amen. Yeah, definitely, and we got to celebrate this that needs for it. each other and share it and, with each other, and do it and share it and yeah. put it out there and say, "Find find life here." Yeah, you know when when the Lord says, "I have come that they may have life and have it to the full." It's not Gnostic, soulish. You know, you're going to get life. It's also artifacts too. And I believe that life to the full, my life to the full, is partly John Mark's songs. My life to the full is partly Andy Squire's songs. You know, like my life to the full is 
is Paul's podcast. My life to the full is listening to the Holy Ghost when I was in a dark place. My life to the full was hearing you bring the morning for the first time and crying. My life to the full are Sam McCabe's songs. I mean, my life to the full are not just like, I feel like my soul is being lifted up in some kind of soulish, mm, like in a disembodied yeah. way. But my life to the full is actually these these or, things that I can even, feel and touch. Or even just your life to the full in the individualistic frame. Um, that's, the, right. that's the thing I sometimes get leery with when, um, and this isn't a counter to what John Mark has really been pushing people to, to dream again. But when I'm so still trapped in my cultural narrative, which again, I've talked about this before in the past podcast. There's a guy named Hirt Hofsfeedy. He was a Dutch social psychologist, did this in groundbreaking research into cultural values. The United States, they did this um, Hofsfeedy index on all these sorts of values where they measured these things across national societal cultures. The United States is far and away the most individualistic country in the world. And there's there's good stuff that comes with individualism and an emphasis on the individual has value. I don't want to counter that. I would rather live here than the hyper-collectivist nations of the world, just as a personal preference. But I also recognize that that individualism runs counter to the story of Jesus in our hyper-individualistic frame. So I, I, need to be, I need to be aware of that when I'm dreaming you know, that, that's something where we need to have our narratives, our personal narratives, brush up against the narrative of the kingdom of God and constantly being asked, am I following the true guiding story? Because my dreams that I want to bring into the world are dreams that aren't just for me. It's, and that's why the framing of the question is, how can I bless the world that I inhabit with other people? And Ted, you just listed off how valuable the work of John Mark and Andy is. And I'm, I'm thankful for whatever small role my podcast plays or a guy like a Sam McCabe out there. Um, we need to support each other, not just for our own benefit either, but because I realized when I, my wife and I buy a t-shirt from Andy Squires, Andy, I haven't worn the t-shirt yet. Like it just, <laughs> it's sitting in my closet. <laughs> I'm wearing an Andy t-shirt right now. <laughs> That's great. But I probably won't wear the t-shirt. <laughs> but I, we did it because we know this is the way that Andy keeps doing what he does to bless the world. And that for us is a very different economy than going, all right, what can I get from Andy for the simple exchange of my dollars for his? What can give me benefit? It's like, let's buy a bunch of stuff from him. Even though we stream a bunch of music, we know that's not going to pay the bills. And Andy needs to have the bills paid so he can keep doing what he's doing. When John Mark comes to town, when this can happen one time, it's like, I want to go buy a ticket, right? Because it's not just because I'm going to get value from this. It's because I actually see the way that what John Mark does blesses the world. That's the reason why we give at churches or we give to other people. And I just thought... I've been like, what if even as people thinking about how do we re-enchant the world, how do we re-enchant the stories that we're living in, what if we could even counter the story by just saying, here's what I've decided to do with my work right now. It's like, I'm going to give it away. And I, I will just ask if people see value in it and they think it's worth supporting so I can keep blessing other people, they can do that. And that's why I have a thing like a Patreon page. Right. It's like so that I can keep doing this stuff and not throw in an advertisement in the middle of this conversation for coffee or something like that. That's one way of doing it. But I just 
I just dream of a better way, which is like, what can I do that would bless somebody else? And then I just do it. Yeah. And then I just trust that yeah. if not in this age, in the age to come, I will be rewarded mm. by the, the judge who, who judges the whole world and who do, who'll do what is right. I'm going to stand before that Bema seat, which isn't like a seat of condemnation. It's the reward seat in the old Olympian games. I'm going to stand before the Bema seat and I'll, I'm like running for the victor's crown. That's and I see that in you guys too. Um, that doesn't mean like obviously somebody, especially from a different cultural context, can take a look at my life and go, "Dude, you're not sacrificing anything." And they're probably right. I live very comfortably, by the large part. You know, maybe not by American standards for for most of our life, but still, you know, we're doing comfortably. Um, yeah. All of us are by world standards, but um, still, I think that like that cultural story has to be cross-examined. And so when we start thinking about what are we going to do with our life, I just think maybe the story of Jesus again, and we we talked about this when I was with you guys in Charlotte. It's like, what if it's just to plant a garden? What if it's just to raise some kids in Babylon? What if it's just Ooh. to seek the welfare of the city that I'm inhabiting yeah. right now? And uh, I don't know, man, I'm I'm ready... Gosh, I don't want to say this. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm I'm ready to deal with the consequences of that kind of life. You know, and I I believe you guys are. And if I know there's things that I haven't turned over to the Lord in that regard, but I I hope guys like you would, if you saw it in me, you'd call it out too. You know, that's the other part of doing this together, and not just being individuals, is open ourselves up to say, "Hey, Ted, dude, call me out on that if you feel like I'm not running my race." with the victor's crown in mind. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm showing more than I'm sharing, and that's one mantra I've tried to think about mm-hmm. even with social media, I will share, but I will not show. Uh, I have something to share with others. That's how I might want to use this. I don't need to show anything to anybody else. Do you guys have anything else you want to throw in as maybe closing thoughts here? Yeah, I, I wrote this down in my notes recently. I wrote... Dreams don't have to be selfish. And the best dreams are probably not. And then my next note was maybe what it means to dream with God is to dream about other people because I think that's what God dreams about. Mm. And, And I realized a couple of years ago, my whole thing changed when I realized I, I had lost meaning in, in the music that I was making and I realized I lost meaning because I thought it was all for me. And that became very boring. Mm-hmm. It became very, very boring. Now I am with Andy. Like my wife wouldn't let me post my top Spotify for the year because I was my top artist for the year <laughs> on Spotify. Right? Like I I stand behind it. I'm not, <laughs> what's the 80s hair club for men advertisement? Like I'm not just the president. I'm also a client, yeah, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. I love what I make. If you don't love what you make, then don't please don't put it out to the world. If totally, hundred percent. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, we all. Anyway, I'm not going to say what I was about to say there, but, um, but I realized something, and it's where things with market get really weird. It's like, also, if I'm a farmer, I don't want my crops to fail. Yeah, I want. But there's a difference in being a farmer and a chef. That being a good farmer doesn't make you a good chef. Being a good chef doesn't make you a good farmer. It's awesome if you can do both. And my point is this, is that there's something about creating and there's something about delivering and there is good, there's a good posture in both. Mm. 
And what I mean is that like, and I, I'm not saying even did this well before. I'm just saying I'm excited about doing it the last few years is that like developing a consistent conversation with other human beings where they can, they feel like they can trust you in your work, you know, that will have a positive market effect, even though the market effect is not the point. But developing that trust among an audience is really amazing. Maybe because I had trust among an audience and kind of lost it Mm-hmm. Because I got it by accident. And then I realized like, whoa, whoa, you know, and I, I used to tell people all the time, your audience owes you nothing. Your audience doesn't owe you a thing. All your audience owes you is <laughs> that if they trust you, they'll come back. That's all they owe you, you know, and hopefully if you're lucky, you get an opportunity to build trust. But I think I probably lost trust with an audience. I took it for granted. And I realized like, actually, this is, I love this. But I'm not doing it for the market. I'm literally doing it because I love the, that I get the opportunity to share these ideas with other people. And I'm also not just the president of people. I'm also a client. Do you feel like that turning point, I was just thinking of this, John Mark, do you feel like that turning point in your life came after the release of Economy? Was that, you know, that, that record... That and what you've moved into afterwards, to me, I look back and I go, just as a person from the outside, I look at it and go, man, there seems like between those two records, and I like Economy too. Yeah, yeah. There seems like there was like a, a, a new wine. <laughs> I'm going to use my charismatic language here. But there was something something there. Uh, yeah, I, 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 that was part of it for sure is uh, a lot of things fell apart after Economy. My record label sold to another record label right in the middle of recording. Our record label went bankrupt and they got sold to another company, which is really a book company. It took them several years to figure out exactly what they were doing. And I was like the first record they put out. So they didn't have a lot of experience. We put my record out, my relationships, my band guys, who are also my best friends, were all falling apart. Um, and I realized I'd taken a lot for granted and and borderland is really diving back into a more honest expression and, and the truth is like and when it's not like you make these decisions always or ever perfectly i thought i was doing the right thing when i made economy I mean, and it's still a great record people still love it there's still songs on that record i really love but it was like i was deluded by other thing by other ideas mm-hmm. and uh but you can't see it when you're in it you know you can't always see it when you're in it and it's it's probably always kind of there. It's just more trying to be, for me, it's about trying to purify the expression as much as possible, you know, but not so much that like I kill what's really there either. It's like, I gotta be, I, I gotta be hard on myself, but if I'm too hard on myself, I'm like, um, well, I'm, well, I'm tearing out the weeds. I'm also going to rip up the crop at the same time. So sometimes you just got to let the crop and the weeds grow up together and then see what it is after it's done. And that's what artwork is. I don't know that you can ever judge something while you're making it. You got to make it and put it out and then be like, Oh, okay. That's what that was. You know what I mean? And, and then after you've done it for a while, then while you're in it, you can kind of be like, this feels like when I was doing that, let's go in this direction. Yeah. You know, but yeah, no, I mean, gosh, I had like crisis after every record, <laughs> you know, but yeah. Mm. And you, the reception to your record, what has been the number one thing that um, has stood out to you about the sorts of feedback, not the 
maybe not the ones where it's like, hey, my pastor says I can never sing these songs in church. But um, what do you feel like the takeaway? Have, do you feel like people have received what you hoped to have planted? Yeah, it, it's it's been a really gratifying journey, actually. It, what, what's been fascinating for me is how I've spoken to a lot of people who don't even know the Cherry Blossoms record and just somehow stumbled into poet priest and and uh it's been it's it's great to know that that record is you know finding a home it's i mean cherry blossoms is still doing great work for me it's still i you know people talk bad about streaming i love streaming i think it's fantastic because my my record's always working for me i mean the algorithms are always working for me all the time and i just freaking love it um so yeah, the the res- the response is it, it's a really hard record to be ambivalent about. So I'm sure people that hate it aren't sending me e- emails. You know, it's like, but I've 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 heard from some people that have just been just kind of confused. You know, like I was saying to somebody recently, what's so interesting to me is that when you when you're when you're not using evangelical language in the direction of Christians, people automatically assume you're deconstructing. And that's to me, the, the saddest critique of our subculture is that people don't know <laughs> when, when you're not falling away from faith. Like if you're, tell, if you're telling a faithful story, they automatically assume you're leaving faith behind or you're having some kind of crisis of faith and, you know, which is a perfectly fine thing to have. I'm just not having a crisis of faith, you know? Uh, so folks get confused and I have to explain myself a lot, which I'm happy to do because I like to talk about this stuff. It's interesting to me, but, um, but I, I do, I do think that record's going to be around for a long time and it's going to, slowly work its way into the hearts and minds of people that need to hear it. So yeah, I'm, I'm super pumped and feel real positive about it. Great. I'm thankful for both your, both of you guys and the songs that you make. And there's, there's very little in that sort of faith space that I find myself um, taking in, you know, I was even telling my, uh, my kids in the car the other day, cause they were saying, Hey, you know, the two youngest always want to listen to a local Christian radio station. And, I begrudgingly will let them, which is really cute. I'm glad that they do, you know. Um, but I was to my yeah. oldest. My oldest, he was laughing with me. He was like, "Dad, we think it's. I think it's kind of funny. Like you're a pastor, and like when we browse the radio stations and like Led Zeppelin comes on, you crank that up. But when we stop on the Christian stations, you just you try to change the channel halfway through the song. <laughs> anyway, so you guys are doing stuff that I find I find really really helpful. And uh, Ted, I just appreciate your voice and and uh, in my life and the contributions you've made to my ever expanding view of God and the world and helping me make sense of it all, guys. This was such a blast. Thanks for carving out the time together and. Um, Let's do it again, hopefully face-to-face sometime in the near future. Amen. Love Love you guys. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to today's episode. I hope you found it helpful. I'd love to hear from you and to hear what you've gotten out of today's conversation, points of agreement, things that made a light bulb go off in your head or something come alive in your heart. 
or even things you found to be disagreeable that you want to pose an objection to. I'd love to hear that stuff as well. The first place that you want to go to do that would be in the Deep Talks Patreon group. We have discussion forums for each episode. There's a discussion forum for today's episode that you'll find on that Patreon page, and you can chime in and participate in that. By becoming a supporter for as little as two bucks a month, you help ensure that this podcast can remain ad-free. We're looking to hit this summer our first layer, or first layer, first tier, what's the word I'm looking for? First level goal, whatever you want to call it, of having 300 patrons. We've got thousands of listeners across the world who tune in um, every week to these episodes. And if only 300 of you backed and supported this podcast, it would help me do a lot more that I want to do, including a lot more video content to actually be able to sustain doing weekly episodes without ads. So if you felt like supporting, I would welcome it. And um, thanks for considering doing that. You'll find a link in the description of this podcast to find out how you can get involved. There's a few perks that happen uh, as well if you become a Deep Talks supporter on Patreon. Certainly, um, there are these Q&A episodes. There is the discussion forums. I also post resources like in the In Christ Alone series. Last week, I posted a recommended reading list and all the biblical passages I used in that series, or I should say cited in that series. Um, There's also a monthly Patreon uh, Zoom call that we do with everyone in the Theology 201 group or higher, where every month we hop on a call all together and we have some discussion, usually around two or three issues uh, or topics a month. Um, People share some of the things that they've been reading or listening to that's provoked positive transformation in their life. And it's just, it's just been such a, a marvelous time each month that we do this. So maybe that's something you're looking to get involved with. Again, you can find out about that in the link provided as well. Finally, my one other ask of you is if you would consider leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts, as that's the number one place people go to find new podcasts. Um, The best chance that they have of discovering this is by you uh, adding a review, adding a rating. It just increases the algorithmic chances that someone else might discover this podcast too as well. So thanks for considering doing that. Again, if you're not ready to get involved in the Patreon thing, that's just fine as well. You could also reach out to me on Twitter. You could also connect with me. I'm doing more on Instagram as well. So if you want to connect with me over there, uh, you'll find a link for that. It's just at Paul Anleitner for both places. But you can find a link for my um, my Twitter account in the in the show notes, in the description to this podcast. Finally, I want to give an extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Anders, BJ, Carolyn, Carolyn Ruth, Eli, Elise, Dr. Jim, John Michael, Johnny, Josie, JT, Justin, Lola, Luke H, Michael Hawk, Michael Hernstein, Michael Peterson, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Peter, Rob, Sam and Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, Stephen M, Taylor S, and Tim K. Thank you all for your generous support, and until next time, we'll talk again soon.